vintage video and photo footage. We just want to take you on a little trip down memory lane here. Um, so if you want to find your seats, we're going to roll a little footage here from Redemption's uh, storied last 10 years of ministry. My name is Mike Barr, the lead pastor of Redemption City Church, inviting you to find your place in the story. Pastor Tyler Sinclair, lead pastor at Cornerstone Church Detroit. That's one to send a quick shout out, show you some love on your 10th anniversary. 10, 10, 10, 10. That is huge. I want to thank you for your partnership in the gospel. You guys were one of the very first churches to partner with me and to support our family in planting Cornerstone. Hello Redemption City Church, greetings from Antalya, Turkey. I just want to congratulate you for your 10th year anniversary. I pray that many more decades that the gospel uh, declares through you uh, to people of Grand Rapids. And uh, we just wanted to thank you for your support, your care and your prayers. Hey, Redemption City Church, I am Ethan. And I'm Kyle. And we are both pastors at Union Church, which is a church plant on the east side of the state. And we just want to let you know how grateful we are for you, uh, for your partnership in the gospel. So here we are, 10 years later, uh, still passionate about helping people find their place in God's epic story of redemption, um, still wanting to see a gospel resurgence and renewal happen here in our city, still passionate about seeing churches planted here in West Michigan and around the world. By God's grace, we are established here as a church. We have a building, we have a growing staff, and we want to spend the next 10 years helping more people find their place in God's story. To be agents of renewal here in our city, and we want to see our church plant more churches in West Michigan and around the world. So would you roll up your sleeves and join us in this beautiful but messy work. Would you pray? Commit to pray for the work that moves forward here in our city. Would you pray that God would raise up missionaries and church planners? 
from our church to go out for the sake of the name. And would you consider generously supporting this work as it moves forward? It has been such a great joy and privilege for our family to be a part of this church family over the last 10 years. And we are planning for many more years of fruitful gospel ministry here in our city. Oh man, that video there. But truly, what, what an honor and a privilege and a joy. If you couldn't hear that because of the fan in that alleyway there. <laughs> what a privilege to go back and take that trip down memory lane. And what a privilege to see so many of you who have been a part of this ministry. I feel like uh, we, we focus on and reflect on the faithfulness of God, but we've seen the faithfulness of God displayed through so many faces that are here in the room this morning. And I'm just not going to do justice Gosh, I feel terrible even mentioning some of it because there's so many people that have been a part of making Redemption City Church what it is. But I do feel like today having some folks here, every Chris and Nicole Travis from 10 years ago, traveled from California to come out here to be with us today. I think they get the record for, uh, for distance and stuff. But to see uh, Eric and Amy Cunnan, who were with us all the way out at Bethlehem Baptist in the Piper's, you know, dining room for kitchen, and, you know, seeing uh, many other families, Butch and Jamie here, uh, elders there at our church family, Chris and Nicole, who are elders there as well, back to visit this year. Uh, so many others, uh, obviously, uh, John and Sarah Holderbaum, who have been there from the very beginning, still hanging with us here. Kevin and Christy Voss, right from the very start with this thing. And so many others. I just, I just as I look around, there are more names that need to be mentioned. Uh, Josh and Emily, who are back, all the way back in those pictures. And uh, gosh, there's just so many. And I could just go on for the next 15 minutes um, calling out just evidences of God's faithfulness here in our midst. And just want to thank you all for the bottom of my heart for giving our family a chance to be along for this journey. Oh my gosh, it has been such a ride and it's been such a privilege for us. Greatest thrill of my life to be a part of this church family. And so thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. And uh, after that, I'm going to hand it off to the scripture reader this morning, um, but wanted to give a very big heartfelt thank you, and ultimately, all the glory goes to God and everything that's been done. So let me set up our scripture reader this morning, and then, oh my gosh, I forgot our guest of honor here this morning, too. One last name, one last thank you I got to do this morning, and then I keep stealing some of his time to preach, so... I got, <laughs> I got to give a huge uh, shout out to Rod Van Salkma, who is here this morning from Crossroads Bible Church. Um, most of you don't know, he was in one of the pictures because he was on our board of directors before this thing was even a thing. Rod uh, gave me an office space um, in their office. They gave us a ministry space there to launch um, some of you, the Vosses, I think the Zanini's. Um, a couple others, John and Sarah, uh, Chris and Nicole, uh, Eric and Amy were there in the upper room at Crossroads those years ago. And so Rod has been along for the journey through all the turbulence, the highs and the lows. Uh, when I went through burnout a couple of years ago, he was, he was right there, man, coaching me through it, walking me through it. As the church was picking up steam again and casting new vision, Crossroads has been a support and encouragement. Our church, I don't think, would be here without Rod's support and the support of Crossroads Bible Church. And so uh, it's just fitting that he's here. I get to just celebrate and hang out and talk with all of you guys. And he's going to come do the heavy lifting and preach God's word for us this morning. But 
I don't get the chance to do this a lot publicly, Rod, but thank you, man. You have been such a, a blessing to me in ministry and just a, a big brother in the ministry. So thank you, sir. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to Kate to do our scripture reading, and we're going to be, we're going to be digging into the gospel according to Mark. So... It's a new mic. Here we go. There we go. That, that's on me. Um, yeah, it's, it's a true honor to be here today. Um, man, Mike, that just seems not that long ago when you uh, made your way from Bethlehem Baptist. I don't know how you found Crossroads, uh, but we had that wonderful time together um, where our friendship and partnership in the gospel flourished. And I remember Mike just saying to me, I, I feel led, I feel strongly called to plant a church. And I said, where? In Grand Rapids. And I'm just inside and thinking, oh. And the reason I thought that is because uh, 10 years before Mike came to town, God uh, did the same thing in my life. He, he called me to leave the city of Chicago, uh, where I was set up to plant a church downtown, and somehow he just took me by the ear and took me to Grand Rapids to plant a church. And, uh, but when Mike told me that, um, I mean, I wouldn't even wish that sometimes on, on my own children. Uh, <laughs> church planning's hard. I don't know how Crossroads made it, even through the first two years. And yet, uh, our church is in the city. And then to be here today, 10 years after God uh, launched this church, uh, and to see where it's planted to see who is a part of this church, uh, to sense the presence of God in this place, to know Mike and Jamie and their love for Jesus Christ, their burning passion for the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, uh, and just knowing then the world that we live now and how much our world, this is all God's plan. His plan to redeem the world is through his Christ and his kingdom, and the kingdom is his church. And so it just brings me great joy to be here. And um, we at Crossroads just think the absolute world of Mike and Jamie. Um, my eyes look up to them. Uh, so I'm just uh, so happy for this church that uh, you guys have capable, humble, godly shepherds who stand on the word of God. And today we're going to look uh, at Mark chapter 4 when... Mike asked me to preach. I just said, give me the next text. Um, a lot of times pastors just like to pull one out of their back pocket, but this is the stream that you guys are living in, and, um, and I want to honor that. And as you guys are learning through Mark's gospel, you're understanding that Jesus didn't just come to be born, to die, to be raised, as central and awesome as that is, Jesus also came to the world with a message, a ministry. Uh, and, and his message, you're learning, is the kingdom of God. And last week, if you were here, uh, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God through a parable. Uh, that's how that part of the world makes sense of reality. In our world, we oftentimes make sense of reality through propositions. That's why we're so comfortable with the Apostle Paul. But in the Eastern world, the Middle Eastern world, uh, they make sense of reality through story and metaphor. 
uh, through pictures. And, and that's why Jesus is constantly teaching. The last verse that was read, whatever he taught, it's through these stories that we call parables. And last week, uh, you learned through this story um, that the kingdom of God is like a seed that a man took and planted in the soil. The farmer is who? Who's planting the seed? It's God. And, and, and you probably learned that one of the shocks, because Jesus has shock, shocking things to his stories that he tells, that his hearers are like, what? What did he just say? Like what farmer throws seed almost recklessly on the path, on the rocks? I mean, he's just throwing it everywhere. Because this father is generous. And the seed is the word. And the word is synonymous with the kingdom of God. Uh, But the kingdom of God is contained in the word of God. In the soil, this is where the parable packs its punch. The soil is a person's heart. And Jesus is telling this parable to get his hearers, which includes us, to ask the all-important question, what kind of soil are you offering the seed? Because good soil plus seed equals an enormous harvest, according to Jesus. Now this week, and I must confess, um, I didn't get the lamp on a stand part um, in terms, I I didn't know I had to preach that, so that's on me though. Uh, We're going to look at at the two other parables, um, but I I do think it all fits, okay? I think you'll be able to read that part of the text after today and and, and have fun with it. Uh, So, this week... Jesus is going to look at the seed, and he's going to blow it up. Because last week it was how it was planted in the soil, but this time the seed, Jesus says, is planted in the earth. Because the seed doesn't just go into the soil of our hearts. In both our parables today, the seed goes into the earth. Four times the word uh, earth is used. It's the Greek word gi from which we get geology, geology. Um, the first of these two parables is, is setting the stage for the parable of the mustard seed. Now listen to Jesus in the first parable, or the parable of the mustard seed, verse 30. He says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Jesus said, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when the smallest of all seeds is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of the garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. This short parable is hugely important. I know it because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this parable, the mustard seed, in their Gospels. In Mark, as we just read, the mustard seed is planted into the earth. In Luke's account, the the seed is planted in a garden. But Mark picks up on this garden theme by emphasizing that the seed grows into the greatest of what? All the garden plants. Matthew and Luke's telling of this parable 
want to emphasize how this tiny seed grows into the greatest of all trees. And Mark also is, is, is seeing that as well. In all three accounts, they all emphasize the branches and the birds who are making their nest in its shade. So here's where we ask this question. What is this story? What is this parable? Teach us about the kingdom of heaven. First thing I know you at a church like this know is that everything Jesus said is rooted in the text. His text is what we call the Old Testament. So Jesus is not going to talk about trees unless the text talks about trees. I think Jesus' audience would know exactly what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about this, this metaphor of the kingdom of heaven being like a tree because they know their Hebrew text. In the ancient world, this imagery of a tree or a vine symbolizes a nation. This is why Israel in the Old Testament is oftentimes described as a vine, this vine that is planted by God. In Isaiah 5, the song of of my beloved, beloved who planted this vineyard, this this vine. Or Ezekiel 17, this, this eagle, this great eagle that came and took one of the small twigs off one of the great cedars of Lebanon, took that little twig and planted it in the ground and that twig grew and became this vine that that just covered uh, the earth and provided shade. Psalm 80 is is one of the most vivid uh, places uh, where this imagery is used. You transplanted a vine from Egypt and you drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root. It filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, at its shoots, as far as the river. So in all of these these images, too, um, you have the branches being emphasized, uh, providing shade. Because this is the kind of people or nation... That God plants. God says, Israel, I want you to be a tree with huge branches that provide shade for the world. The psalmist says, God, you are the shade at my right hand. That's what God is to us. He is shade, which means he is never no far further away from us than we can reach. And now God takes the people and says, I'm going to plant you and you're going to be shade. You're going to be great shade. In fact, I think this is what's going on with Jonah. Jonah, remember, he sitting there waiting for the fireworks, for God's judgment to come down on Nineveh. And as he's waiting for that to happen, like, come on, God, bring it, bring it, bring it. God all of a sudden causes this vine to grow up. And the vine becomes big enough that it provides shade for Jonah in that scorching heat. And Jonah's like, yes. Do you see what God's saying to Jonah? Have you forgotten who I am? That I'm the God that gives you shade? But more importantly, Jonah, have you forgotten who you are? I planted Israel so that you would be shade to even places like Nineveh. Now, there's also, 
expanding on this imagery, what the ancients called the great world tree, kind of one tree to rule them all. Ezekiel 31 describes this tree. How about listen to this out of, out of Daniel chapter 4. This is a really powerful description of this one tree that will rule them all. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land, in the middle of the earth. Its height was enormous, and the tree grew large and strong. Its top reached the heavens. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for every living thing. Under it, the wild animals found shade, and the birds of every kind lived in its branches. Every creature was fed from this tree. Can you picture this tree planted in the center of the world? And so great is it that its leaves reaches the heavens. See, the ancients understood this to be the axis mundi. Axis mundi was their idea that the world had a navel where heaven and earth connected. The axis mundi can take different forms. It could take the form of a great mountain or it could take the form of a great temple. In Jacob's dream, the axis mundi is depicted as this great staircase coming down from heaven that connects heaven with earth. The Tower of Babel is actually this tower that's described that reaches the heavens. This is humanity's attempt to create an axis mundi. And see, Jesus, through this parable, he's just tantalizing his audience with this image, an image that I think they're all very familiar with, and one that, according to the Bible, I think, explains the whole story. In fact, I think this image explains the entire history of the world. Because when you look at the beginning of our story in Genesis, the world that God creates is a paradise. It's, it's a world that, that God says it's, it's good, it's good, it's good in absolutely every way. It, it was whole, it was complete. The world was a garden, there was no death, there was no suffering, no disease, decay. There was no poverty, no brokenness. And then when you stop and consider why that world was a garden, it's because in the center of that garden, in the center of all God's creation, was this great world tree that the Bible calls the tree of life. And this symbolizes why the world is good, because the entire world, all God's creation, is connected. It's connected to heaven. The world had God, it had its glory, it had God's presence, it could see God's face. I think one of the things that we quickly forget is is how much you and I have been made for this garden, more specifically how we've been made for God. God is the environment for which we've been made, his presence, his glory, his face. This is what we need to flourish, to thrive. In fact, whether we know this right now or not, we, we absolutely need God more than we need water, more than we need food, 
even more than we need oxygen. God is the soil that we need to flourish. And unless we're planted in him, at best, we'll be a little weed. But when we are planted in the soil, in the environment of God, we become what Isaiah 61 describes as oaks of righteousness. But you guys know the story. Tragically, human beings wanted control. Adam and Eve, they stiff-armed God. They wanted to be their own masters, their own lords, their own saviors. God says, fine, you want to do life without me. God withdraws from their presence. And the moment that their relationship with God fell apart, the whole world fell apart. And God withdrew his presence and heaven became distant from earth and the world lost the great tree and everything unraveled and shalom was lost and the world as we know it today became broken in every way. But the prophets foresaw a day in which God would plant a tree a great world tree, an axis mundi that would reconnect heaven and earth. And when that tree is planted, the presence of God would re-enter the earth and his glory would once again fill it as the waters cover the sea and the earth would once again become a paradise. And this is our hope. And in this tree, as the prophets described, the birds of every kind would nest in its branches, make their home. Again, the birds are the nations and the people of the world. And if you want to know what we've really lost when we lost the tree, is we lost home. Because this world as it is, a world that's alienated and disconnected from God, it will never be home. I mean, just take anything good right now that you can imagine, anything good in your life, a good family, a good job, a good friendship, prosperous life. I don't, I don't care how good any of that good is. Right now, it's all moving away from us. It's all slipping through our hands like water. Take even the best possible life that you can imagine right now. That life, too, is in the process of decay. Everything is falling apart. Everything is moving away from us. But the kingdom of heaven is the promise of this great tree of God once again breaking into this world to reconnect heaven with earth and earth to heaven of heaven coming down and renewing earth, restoring it. And just think about what that means. It's the promise of God's glory, of God's presence, once again, filling the earth, cleansing it of all sin and death and decay, cleansing it of all disease, of every kind of division. Cleansing it of all war and injustice and poverty. Cleansing it of death itself. The kingdom of heaven is the promise that God is going to make our world into a garden again. And Jesus has the guts, wherever he goes, to say, it's here. I'm bringing that.
Have you considered what it means? Have you thought out the implications that Jesus describes salvation in terms of a kingdom? I'll tell you, it starts with with this. It means that God's salvation is not just about you, but it's also about the world. I think it's so easy to make God's salvation all about me, uh, this personal and private thing that's between God and me, me and God, that God loves me, that God has a wonderful plan for my life, that he forgives me and that he saves me. All of this is true. The fact that God's salvation is a kingdom also means it's not just about making me happy and giving me a good life and forgiving my sins, but that God is going to renew the whole world. That's why I love to think about the end of the biblical story when you get to the last two chapters of our Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. When you see what is depicted there, you don't see just a few souls escaping this world and going up to heaven. heaven. Instead, what we see is that heaven is actually coming down to renew this world. Because God's grand purpose is, is for more than just our souls. It's to save and redeem the whole world. And that's what this first parable is, is, is here to tell us. Because whether right now... You can see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus wants you to know, listen to what he says. He said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or get up. The seed sprouts, it grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is right, he puts the sickle to it because... The harvest has come. What Jesus is saying, whether you can see the kingdom of heaven or not right now, it is happening. And it has organically entered our world. And one day we can have the hope that the world that we live in will be heaven. This is where history is going. The kingdom of heaven is this unstoppable force that comes to earth to redeem it, to restore it, to rehabilitate it, to reconcile it, to resurrect it. And see, when I start to know that, that, that God's salvation is, is not just about me and my life, but it's here to heal and restore the whole world, of course it causes me to care about one soul, but it also causes me to care about all that God cares about. Things like poverty and injustice and our neighborhoods, the environment, because it all matters to God. Another implication of God's salvation being a kingdom. A kingdom assumes a king. And I know king is, is, is something foreign to us, but, but I think we know how, how we relate to a king that that we relate to a king differently than we relate to a friend or a boss. Because with a king, what you do is you, you bow and you kneel and you hand over your sword, you, you give up control, you give a king 
your full allegiance. Jesus is not just a king, but he is the king, and he is the king of this kingdom, which means when we come to this king, we don't come to this king on our terms. We don't get to come to him negotiating. We don't come to him to get him to fit into our agenda or to fit him into what we want him to be. As C.S. Lewis says, he is the king, I tell you. So we bow, we kneel. We trust him with everything. We trust him with our past, our present, our future. We trust him in our relationships. We give up control of our lives and living for ourselves. We give up control of our time and our talents and our money. We literally take the keys of our life and we hand it over. He's the king. And this is the only way in which God's kingdom will break in and out of our lives, which is why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Do you relate to Jesus this way? That he's the king? Do you worship him as king? Do you trust him? Like he's the king? Have you given him the allegiance of your life? Like I said, Jesus can't tell a parable without there being a detail that just shocks his audience. And here's the shocker in in the parable. It's it's in the second parable. It's it's the kind of tree that this, this great world tree that the prophets speak about. This axis mundi that this great tree is a mustard tree. I mean, even the Bible, when it uses this imagery of of a tree, it's usually the great cedars of Lebanon, which is the equivalent of the redwoods to us. But Jesus doesn't use that. He doesn't say, the kingdom of heaven is like a great redwood. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard tree. I can promise you, if you were in that audience that day, you would hear people behind you literally saying, is this a joke? I mean, a mustard tree was even hardly classified as a tree. It's more of a shrub or a bush. In fact, every farmer wanted to get rid of this tree uh, from their field or garden because once it got in, it just spread like gangrene and it took over everything. And maybe this is why Jesus is using Uh, the mustard seed, to teach us about the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is this invasive, this organically invasive uh, reality, and it will become the biggest and the greatest. And we love that idea of something that we're a part of, becoming the biggest, the largest, the greatest. I mean, our hearts just run there. But what about the smallness of the seed? Because I think what gets missed in this parable is, is simply the small seed, which so fits into God's MO. Because every leader of every organization, every president, every coach, every king has their mode of operation. 
And when they take their position, they bring with them a new set of values, a a new culture, this whole new mode of operation. And I want us to see that the mode of operation that God's King Christ has brought. It's a whole new set of values. It's a whole new culture. God loves. He absolutely loves small. This whole story screams small. I'm going to be going to Israel in a couple of weeks. I, I, I lead tours there, and every time I am there, I am just so struck by how much God loves small. When God is going to begin a nation that's going to be as numerous as the stars, who does he find? He finds the two most barren people on the face of the earth. And barrenness runs through the whole story. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. Whenever God needs a great person to do a great task, it's a David who's the least of eight brothers. It's Gideon who's the least tribe, the least family, the least part of that family. When he needs a people to become his his chosen nation, who does he pick? He picks Israel. In Deuteronomy 7 and 9, he says to Israel, I didn't pick you because you're the greatest. I picked you because you were the smallest. I didn't even pick you because you're the most righteous. I picked you because you're the least. And then when you consider the land that, that, that he put them in, the stage for so much of the story, so much of it is desert-like. It's small, it's humble, it's barren. And over and over again throughout the story, it's the least, it's the smallest, it's the weakest, the poorest, it's the barren. So that by the time you come to Jesus himself, the king of the universe, who fashioned the galaxies, who knows every star by name. Look at him. He's born in small, humble Bethlehem. He's raised by two parents who are too poor to even offer the normal sacrifice in the temple. The people that he picks for his movement are the little people, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the marginalized. Those are the same people who are drawn to him. Those are the people who bow down to him. They're sinners, they're tax collectors, the marginalized. And I'm going to tell you, as you continue to journey through Mark, you're going to see That Jesus is a man of the little people, the ostracized, the marginalized, the weak. And how many different ways did Jesus spell out this value? And now here he is teaching. It's the smallest of seeds that becomes the great tree. Why? This is God's heart. This is his way. The way to fullness is by emptying yourself. The way up is by going down. The way to power is by giving up power. True strength comes through weakness. 
The way to get riches is by giving it away. The way to be really happy is to not even try to be happy, but to live to make other people happy. The way to greatness is through humility. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. And the way to freedom is to say to God, here I am, own me, all of me. See, Jesus' kingdom is turning the world's values completely upside down. We can't miss this. I know why we do often, because as Americans, we actually belong to the biggest tree in the world, and everything that most of us have been taught our whole lives is to get big and to make it to the top and get noticed and be unique and be original and stand out and give a good impression and get as many likes as you can, be in control of your life. And yet God's whole agenda is predicated on small and humble. Instead of going up, it's about going down. Instead of becoming great, it's about being little. Instead of seeking power, it's about giving up power. God, may your church know this. Do you know anyone right now who lives this way? (laughs) Who's striving to be small, striving to go through life unnoticed, striving to, to make their lives so vulnerable because they keep giving it all away. But Paul said it so well, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the small things to shame the mighty. And God loves this so much that he became it. Do you know that Jesus became the smallest of all seeds? Not only did Jesus become a human, but he became a baby. And not even just a baby, but he became an embryo, and not just an embryo, the God of the universe became a single cell, the smallest of seeds. And then when you ask yourself, why did he do this? He did it for us because he loves us that much. He went that far down. And here's the deal. Some of you this morning might think that you're actually something, but if Jesus had not come, if he had stayed up, we would have gone down. But because Jesus came down and became a tiny seed, we can be lifted up. As he said, unless the seed falls in the ground, it remains a single seed. But if it goes into the ground and it dies, it produces enormous fruit. This tiny seed produced the Axis Mundi, the world tree. And this tree is a cross. The cross, Christ crucified, is the great world tree that God puts in the center of the world to reconnect heaven with earth. 
And if you want your life right now reconnected with God, if you want the life of God, the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the power of God, the healing of God, the salvation of God, if you want to be reunited with home, this tree stands in the center of the world. Christ crucified. Just think about this tree. Jesus through this tree, doesn't only win over losing, but he wins through losing. He not only triumphs over defeat, but he triumphs through defeat. And then when you think about the way that we actually receive all the power of the seed, C.S. Lewis describes this power, the power to raise all the dead things to life. We have to receive this kingdom the same way that this kingdom is given. It's, it's, it's given in weakness, humility. We don't receive this kingdom by being great, but by being small. And that's why the people I'm most concerned, at least about in my church, are not the small, it's not the weak people, it's not even people who see themselves as failures, but it's It's the big people. It's those who are on top, those who are in control, because according to the Bible, the big people are the ones who never really get it. They believe in Jesus, but they never really love him. And they never really enter his kingdom. Do we know right now how small we really are? Do we know right now how desperate we truly are? Do we regularly pray prayers to God? God, here's my life, all of it. I place all of it in your hands so that you can take me by the hand and lead me down and further down. You could humble me, even break me. Or today in a room this size, maybe you are one that feels like you're going down right now maybe even in some humiliating defeat. Something really bad is happening to you. It might even be a failure you are experiencing. But here's the good news of the gospel. That the way up is to actually go down. And so when you go down, look for Jesus. Because I promise you, he will be there. And he says, humble yourself under my almighty hand and I will lift you up. Blessed are the poor, said Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, I praise you that this is a church that knows this king and is walking this king's path. And I pray, God, that because of that, the kingdom of heaven would break in and break out. God, that you would continue to use this church in mighty ways, in this neighborhood, in this city, and may it impact the nations for the glory of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen.